0: So, our passage today comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. I'd ask uh, wherever you are, if you're able, would you stand, please, for the reading of God's word? Paul writes to the church in Ephesus Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, ...out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. Verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. God, And you may be seated. From this passage this morning, I'll preach from the title, Cooperating with God. Cooperating with God. One of the challenges that the Apostle Paul faced as he preached the gospel and started churches throughout the Roman Empire was showing people the radical social implications of their new faith in Jesus. You see, for the most part, these new Christians, whether Jewish or Gentile, already believed in God or in many gods. Uh, And yet, by and large, these beliefs didn't compel them to move beyond the social circles of their class or status or citizenship or ethnicity. Oftentimes, in fact, the religious practices that would have been familiar to many of these new Christians actually enforced the stratified and segregated socioeconomic status of their day. Now, as much as certain Americans... Uh, have imagined and would like to imagine our country as an egalitarian meritocracy, the fact is is that our social boundaries can be pretty entrenched as well. Tell us where you live, and we'll be able to surmise a lot about you, how much money you make, whether your kids go to public or private schools, your race, your, the level of education that you have completed, and, and so on. Not only that, but with just a little bit of data about yourself, a reasonable guess can be made about the kinds of people you're most likely to spend your time with, people who unsurprisingly end up looking a whole lot like you Now, there's exceptions to all of this, we, we understand, but I think you get the point. I, I mentioned these predictable social boundaries not to make anybody feel guilty about the structures of their lives. Rather, I want us to see that what Paul discusses in these verses about the boundary transgressing gospel should be just as squirm-inducing for us as it would have been for the original recipients of this letter. Writing to people who were steeped in cultural hierarchies and divisions, Paul showed that God reconciled hostile people to himself through Christ's death and the Holy Spirit's presence. If I can be really honest with you, there have been many times over the past 11 years when I have wondered whether our church would make it. And by make it, I don't mean whether people would show up on a Sunday morning or whether the church would grow uh, numerically. I've had those doubts as well. But what I'm talking about is, is whether our church would actually be able to live into our identity as a reconciled and reconciling people. The walls and the trenches that keep us apart can seem impossibly ingrained in our society and in our own hearts. And then I read a passage like this, and I am reminded that the countercultural unity that we are pursuing here on the south side of Chicago is not tangential or even optional to the mission of the church. It is simply who followers of Jesus are called to be. So as we continue reviewing our church's values, today we're going to look at our second one, unity. And from Ephesians chapter 2, we will see that we cultivate unity by cooperating with God. We cultivate unity by cooperating with God. And, And I think this is actually really important because most of us who call new community our church home understand the importance of unity to our mission. But when it comes to what we actually do, when it comes to our role in fostering unity, well, I think that gets a little bit vague for many of us. You see, we live in a culture that is familiar with ideological uniformity, but has little imagination for the sort of God-glorifying and person-honoring unity that we find in Scripture. And so many of us, like the idea of unity but are left unsure about our own contribution to it but every one of us has a role to play and it's as simple as cooperating with the god who is the source of our countercultural unity okay so how do we do this how do we cooperate with god well i think these verses reveal at least Three choices that every one of us can make today, tomorrow, and this coming week. Three choices which will cultivate our unity. First, we choose to confess our hopelessness. Second, we choose to accept Christ's peace. And third, we choose to offer our lives for his glory. We confess our hopelessness, we accept Christ's peace, and we offer our lives for the glory of God. So the first choice that we make to cooperate with God in order to cultivate unity is to confess our hopelessness. The first couple of verses in this passage, Paul directs the church's attention back. He asks them to remember. And it seems as though he's particularly talking to the Gentile Christians in this passage. They are reminded of Israel's election, of God coming to a particular family and saying, I'm going to bless you in order that you would be a blessing to the world. I'm going to bless you so that people would know what I am like. I'm going to bless you so that people know what I am doing in the world. This election did not mean an exclusiveness. It was meant to prefigure Christ's Messiah or God's Messiah who would come and fulfill God's law and Israel's vocation. And yet election became in many cases exclusive. God's call to a particular people was interpreted as an exclusion of other kinds of people. And, and, and we can't be too judgy about that because we do this all the time. Those of us who've been Christians for a while, we understand this dynamic. We understand that God has called us to, to a kind of holiness in our living that is meant to point people to God. That is meant to show people our dependence on God. That is meant to say something about what God is like. And yet oftentimes that holiness ends up being offense rather than an invitation. But Paul asked the Christians to remember that, that their status had been one of foreigners. Not because of their ethnicity, but because they had been kept from the covenants of God's promise. Paul is here reminding us of the power of sin, not just to keep us from God, but to keep us from one another. Twice earlier on in this chapter, Paul tells the church that they had been dead in their transgressions. Sin separates us from God, but sin also divides us from one another. Paul is wanting the church to understand the social impact of our sin that we were left without hope and without God in the world. Our captivity to sin was total. Our separation, our segregation, our division was complete. We were hopeless. We were in a situation that we had contributed to, but that we could not make our way out of on our own. So this is all pretty discouraging stuff. So why would Paul direct these early, young, vulnerable Christians to remember their previous hopelessness. And I think it has to do with the nature of grace. That Paul wanted this early church to understand that that the unity that they experienced, that the the, the new relational togetherness that they experienced, that the, the expression of God's righteousness and justice that was a part of their community was always a gift from God. It was God intervening in their previous situation, which means there's no room for self-righteousness. There's no room for self-righteousness. There's no room for the church to say, well, look at us. Look at what we have done. Look at what we have figured out. Aren't we great? Paul says, remember you were without hope. Remember where you were. Remember what God did for you. And when we remember, we also have to be humble. There's no room for pride when a people remembers our previous hopelessness, right? It, it means that the, the youngest Christian, the, the, the person who said yes to Jesus five minutes ago, has the same status within the family of God as the person who's been following Jesus their whole life. Amen? Amen. That we are dependent on the grace of God. There's no room for self-righteousness. There engenders a deep humility. I hope you're seeing how remembering our hopelessness can foster our unity. We, new community, are a community of formerly hopeless people. That's who we are. We are a community. We are a a, a people who who used to have no hope. Which means that, that, that we can come to each other and we can say, Oh, you were without hope too? Oh, me too. Oh, oh, you were you were trapped in that sin. Let me tell you that the, the sin that I was trapped in. Oh, you were addicted to that. Let me tell you about my story with the addiction that I'm still getting free from. Oh, you struggle with pride. I struggle with self-hatred, right? We, we, we can confess our hopelessness because God entered our hopelessness to rescue us and to save us. I hope there's a couple people talking back to me in the chat today. This, by the way, is why confession of sin is never a religious duty or obligation, but is always hopeful. When I confess my hopelessness, I am also confessing that Jesus rescued me from that place of hopelessness. When I confess my former captivity, when I confess the place that Jesus is still saving me, I am testifying to the God who enters our situations to save and heal and reconcile all things. Amen. So confession is never embarrassing. It's never shameful. It's never something we're supposed to do. When we confess our sin, when we confess our hopelessness, we are opening space in our lives for God's hope to break in. So one of the things that you and I can do very, very practically is what Paul does here. We can remember our hopelessness. We can confess our Our previous hopelessness, we can look back over our lives and see where we were and see what God has done in our lives. And when we do, we will find that any pride that has started to build up in us has to go away because I am not all that. And and, and any places of self-righteousness has to start to crumble. And instead, a deep humility starts to take root, a deep appreciation for the grace of God a deep tenderness to my sister and brother who are also a part of this grace-sustained family of God. When we confess our hopelessness, we are cooperating with God to cultivate unity. Number two, the second choice that we make to cooperate with God is to accept Christ's peace. To accept Christ's peace. Now, Paul does not linger on the hopelessness. We remember for two verses... And then, but now in Christ Jesus. So there's a turn. But now in Christ Jesus. Now, parenthetically, it's worth noting that, that there's actually very little that you and I do in this passage. Right? The, the, the focus is on unity. And so, so I want to know, so what do I do? How can I do that? How can I experience unity in my life, in my community, in my family, in, in our church? But, but, but there's actually very little that we do in this passage. Right. But now in Christ Jesus, it sort of sums up the fact that our unity from beginning to end is something that has been accomplished for us by God. Never something that we could do on our own. The focus is on what Christ has already done, brought us near by his blood. Destroyed the dividing wall of hostility, set aside the commands and regulations of the law, created a new humanity, put to death our hostility. And then as icing on the cake, Paul also says that it's then the Holy Spirit who holds it all together. Paul shows how Christ's death addresses our hopelessness. In the same way that that our sin impacts our social situation, our relationships, our our community engagement and, and attachment, Christ's death also addresses that same socially infected sin. Paul didn't set aside God's covenant of love for us, but rather in his body he set aside the way that the laws and commandments had separated people from the love of God. The way that things like dietary laws and circumcision had kept people from knowing the love of God. And Paul says, in Christ, that has all been set aside. Now, how? Paul uses a word here four or five times in this passage is the word peace. There's something powerful for Paul about what Jesus has done. Jesus is our peace. Jesus made peace. Jesus preached peace to those who were far and to those who were near. I've said this before. Peace is one of those words that uh, we can we can uh, sanitize. It it, becomes, it means nothing. Uh, we we want it, but we don't really know what it looks like. We don't really know what to what to expect. So so we might think for a moment about those places in our life and our world where there doesn't seem to be much peace. We might think of the negative of peace for for just a moment to consider the significance of peace those places of hostility and and division and enemy making we have to admit that that sin isn't just contained in our hearts but has infected our entire society the systems and structures that undergird how we make our way through lives that 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 sin has infected our relationships where do you see a lack of peace uh, um, uh, Valerie this morning prayed for different areas in our in our in our world in our country where we can see this this lack of peace and I know that as a as a church we often focus really big picture like that we understand that that, that God has called us to be agents of reconciliation that that our community is meant to bear witness to another way of living to bear witness to the kingdom of God that has come near so we're used to thinking big we're not afraid to, to look big picture to speak truth to power but I want to ask you for a second to to look small in in your life where is there a lack of peace right now in your sphere of influence in your relationships in your networks where is there a lack of peace not a rhetorical question where are you not seeing peace right now where are you not experiencing peace right now what what friendship which one of your of your friends are you not experiencing peace with right now? Where in your marriage are you not experiencing peace? like, like, like that thing that you just rehashed for so long that you just don't even you don't even expect there to be peace in that part of your relationship any longer. What about that place in, in, in your past and the way you relate to your past where, where you don't have peace when that memory comes back up? What about your connection to to the creation, to the land, to our environment? Where, Where do you see a lack of peace? We could go on. But I'm asking you to kind of fix in your mind specific examples of where you are not experiencing peace right now. Where the hostility that we see writ large is also true for you very, very close and personally. Paul says that Jesus comes into our hostility with peace. And again, yes, that includes the the big stuff, the systems, the structures, the the, the cultural status quo, but, but Jesus comes into your personal stuff, into your personal hostility and strife and division with his peace. I wonder if you actually accept that. I wonder if you actually expect that. I wonder if we actually want Or have we become so accustomed to those little hostilities? Do we take some pleasure in having a little bit of that dissension and division because it says something about our own self-righteousness that we actually don't want Jesus to bring peace into those areas of our lives? But Jesus came and he preached peace. Paul says he preached peace to those who were near, Jewish women and men, and, and, and to those who were far men and women who were Gentiles. That Jesus' life, that his words show us that God's peace has come near. And then Paul says that, that Jesus made peace when he reconciled us to the Father on the cross. That the shed blood of Christ reunites us to the creator God. And so we have been made peaceful with God and with one another. So Jesus can say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is the assumption. This is the expectation. But how do we do this? How do we make peace in a world that is often so hostile, so divided, so antagonistic, so ideologically driven? How do we make peace? Because here's, here's what I sense in some of us. And I could be wrong, but so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. My sense is that some of us are burning out trying to, to make peace. That, that some of us, yes, some of us are, are not even expecting peace in some areas of our lives. But others of us have these other areas in our lives. And we know there needs to be peace there. And we've been working so hard. We've been striving so hard for peace that we are just teetering on the edge of burnout. Some of us uh, have, have, have jobs uh, and we love our jobs and we're committed to our jobs and we're trying to make a difference in the world in our jobs. But we're not seeing the stuff that we want to see happen. We're not seeing peace coming. So we're just trying harder and we're staying up later and we're, work- we're putting in more hours and we are on the edge of burning out. Some of us, for back to our marriages or our relationships, we know there's not peace there. And so we've taken it on to ourselves. I got to fix this thing. I got to get to the bottom of that thing. I got to unpack that thing. I got to do what I can do in order to make this thing work. Some of us hear Jesus' command to make peace as, as an assumption that we ourselves are capable of bringing peace into those situations. But Paul says that Jesus is the one who steps into our hostility and brings peace. And there's a big, big difference. Only God can create ex nilo. Only God can create something out of Nothing. And some of us today are trying to create peace out of nothing. Some of us are trying to create peace out of our own energy, our own strength, our own wisdom, our own capacity, our own education, our own pleasant personalities, our own ability to convince people that we are right. And you're tired. Worn out. There are areas of your life right now that when it comes to mind, that relationship, that person at work, that 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 person on your block, that dynamic in your family, when it comes to mind, you immediately just feel tired. You immediately just think, well, that's always how it's going to be, because I've tried. I've done what I could do. I, 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 I put the time and the energy and the effort in, and nothing ever changed. But if Jesus is Lord, then his peace is universal His peace is spoken over everything, which means that there is no area of your life untouched by the peace of God. There is no person. There is no relational dynamic. There is no dynamic in your neighborhood, in our city, in our community, at your work that is untouched by the universal reign of the one who claims to be the prince of peace. Nothing is untouched. So accepting accepting Christ's peace means that you and I live as though Christ's peace is actually available everywhere, which is very different than assuming that we are the ones who have to make that thing happen. Instead, we step into those difficult places. We step into those places of strife, knowing that even here, Christ has spoken a word of peace and that troubling and difficult friendship and that troubling and difficult uh, parental relationship and that difficult and troubling social dynamic that you find yourself in the middle of in that place of injustice and wickedness that just seems to be perpetuated time and time again even there Christ has spoken a word of peace so what does it look like for you who find yourself in that place to accept and to believe that Jesus has spoken a word of peace there not to put it on yourself but to live into that peace So real practically, real specifically, where are you not experiencing peace? I'm asking you to to, to be specific, to be practical. What if it's not your responsibility to bring peace into that place? What if Jesus has already spoken a word of peace into that place? What if you are not the one who is meant to fix it, to repair it, to put it all back together? What if Jesus has already spoken peace in that place and you are called to inhabit that place, knowing and believing and being in touch with the Prince of Peace who is there with you. When we accept Christ's peace, we are cooperating with God to cultivate unity. And then finally, the third choice that we make to cooperate with God is to offer our lives for his glory. As a result of Christ making peace, we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we become family members with each other. Or, in another metaphor, Paul says, we become fellow citizens in God's country together. This is the starting point. This is who we are. This is what is true about you. This is your foundation. You belong to the people of God. It's not something you create. It's not something that you force. It's not something you manipulate. It's just true. It's just there. That is your identity in Christ Jesus. And again, we cultivate unity by remembering our hopelessness and accepting Christ's peace. But, But now, towards the end of the passage, Paul shows that our unity is for something. In verse 21, he writes, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In the Old Testament, the temple was the location of God's glory. Where God dwelt. Where God's glory was manifest among God's people. The place where heaven and earth came together. Prefiguring Jesus' prayer. That God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now Paul says. Now the people of God are that holy building. Where God's glory is manifest. Christ's new humanity becomes the location. For God's manifested glory. This is. Is what our unity is for. Mm. (coughs) Our unity. Is not primarily about you feeling good about yourself. Our unity is not primarily uh, about you not being lonely. Our unity is not primarily about you getting to belong to a diverse multiracial church that cares about justice. Our unity is the place that manifests God's glory to the world. That is who you are. That is who we are. Now, again, our role in all of this is for some of you discouragingly passive. You are not the builder. You are not building this holy temple. You are being built into this people who will be the place of God's glory. So let me confess again. One of the hardest things for me about being a pastor is uh, reminding you regularly that this is who you are. There's important tasks. There's, there, there's administrative stuff we got to keep up with. I got a bunch of emails that I need to pay attention to, and I'm sorry if I owe you an email. I'll get to it tomorrow. <laughs> There, there, there are different needs, and, 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 there's, and there's different concerns, and different ones of you are struggling. And this is all true, and this is all real. But at the end of the day, as your pastor, I am called on a regular basis to remind you and proclaim the gospel to you, which says that you, in Christ Jesus, are the people of God. That you are being built into a holy temple where God's glory can be manifest for. The watching world to see and to be changed by. That's who you are. And I know it's difficult for you too. I know know for the congregation, you've got a gazillion different things going on in your life right now. I know that even right now as I'm preaching, some of you are like, okay, but what I got later today (laughs) and tomorrow. And this is like not frivolous stuff. You have important stuff. You have stuff weighing you down, stuff making you anxious. You have people who are depending on you, people who are looking. I get it. And yet, at the end of the day, what is most important about the people of God, about you, about the congregation, is that you are the place where God's glory manifests on this earth. That's our identity. That's who God has called us to be. That is who God is building us to be. And everything else in our lives is meant to take its rightful place around that. this is what we can do. Most of this is what God does from beginning to end, but, but we can offer ourselves for God's glory. Paul says in Romans 12 and one, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. We can give ourselves, we can make ourselves available to be built up into this holy people. Easier said than done. Our default, my default mode is to glorify myself. I'm pretty good at it. I'm pretty good at making the world revolve around me. I don't even have to try. I do it pretty naturally, actually. I'm pretty good at making myself the center of all things, of glorifying myself. And yet I can choose to glorify God. I can choose to cooperate with God by glorifying God, by lifting God up above everything else in my life, by finding myself and and my priorities and my identity in God rather than in anything else. We glorify God when we allow our emotions to direct us back to God. We glorify God when we trust that God's desires for us are better than my desires for myself. We glorify God when we find ourselves grounded in the love of God more than anybody's opinion about us. And this choice to glorify God is so good. Think back to our hopelessness. What good would it have done me? What good would it have done you to glorify myself in that place of hopelessness? From that place of being stuck, of being lost, of being uh, of being unreconciled. What, 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 what good would it have done for me to glorify myself in that place? I didn't need to glorify myself. I needed God to be glorified in me. We need God's glory in our lives far more than we need our own effort in our own lives. And here's the amazing thing. As we glorify God, we actually find who we truly are. When we give God glory, when we elevate God above all things, when we worship God above everything else, we actually find who we are. We find how we move and and breathe and have our being within the God who created us. And so, so, so maybe you could ask a very simple question. How interested am I in glorifying God? Like interested. I don't mean like theologically, I believe that it's a good idea. I mean, like actually in your heart, like, like, you know, on a, on a day to day basis in the real stuff of life. How interested am I in glorifying God? Again, get specific, get practical. How interested am I in glorifying God in the eight to nine to 10 hours a day I spend at work? How interested am I in seeing God receive glory in my work? How interested am I in glorifying God in this new dating relationship that I'm in? Do I want God to receive the glory? How about that one place in your marriage where you all have been stuck forever? Do you, desire, do you want God's glory there? We could go on. Find that place this week. I'm, I know <laughs> there's more than one place probably for all of us. There's more than one place for me. Just, just stick with one, okay? Just stick with one. And then pray this prayer. God, give me a heart to bring you glory here. And be specific. Be specific. God, give me a heart to bring you glory With this coworker, God, give me a heart to to bring you glory in this friendship where there's a lot of tension right now. God, would you give me a heart to bring you glory? In this area of of our marriage that we've been so stuck in for, for so long. God, would you would you give me a heart to bring you glory in this relationship with my with my child? Again, we could go on. But would you just pray that? Would you ask God just for that simple thing in one area of your life this week? Because a church filled with women and men committed to giving our lives for God's glory is a community that is being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, it's a community of people who are the church. When we offer our lives for his glory, we are cooperating with God to cultivate unity. In Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God has already created the conditions for our unity. It's already done. And because this unity, because this reconciliation cost the son of God his life, then there can never be anything cheap about our unity to us. Our unity, our reconciliation was born on the blood soaked hill of Calvary. The redemption accomplished for us by the Prince of Peace on that cross was so complete, was so total as to have been completely beyond our imagining and certainly our accomplishing. The grounds for our peace are so completely a gift of grace from the God of love. You and I are just called to cooperate with what God has already done to aim our decisions, our wills, our priorities into the Holy Spirit wind that is at our backs. So confess your history of hopelessness. Accept the universal reign of Christ's peace in every place of hostility in your life. And then offer your lives specifically and practically To the glory of your God. Spirit of the living God. We thank you today for your word. And we thank you today. For the unity that is ours in Christ Jesus. That we who were foreigners and aliens. To the covenant love of God. Have been brought near through the Holy Spirit. In the death. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that this is just who we are. That you have done this already. And we know we live in a world that pulls us apart. We know we live in a world that causes us to doubt could this actually be true? And so, Spirit of the Living God, I'm asking that you redirect our, our, our focus to some little things this week, to some things that are nearby and close to our hearts, that are within our spheres of influence. Show us in those places of division and hostility. Where you stand bringing peace. Show us how we get to cooperate with you, the Prince of Peace, in those places of hostility in our own lives. God, we we want to know your peace. And where we don't want to know it, I pray that you would help us to want to know your peace. We ask for your forgiveness now for assuming that there are some places in our lives where we will just never know your peace. That there are some relationships where we will never know your peace. Forgive us for assuming that somehow the devil's lies about our hostility and division are stronger than the unity that was accomplished in the death and resurrection of our Savior. So forgive us, Lord, and then give us a vision. For how we can cooperate with you. And living into the unity that is ours in Christ Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.